Good morning, Redemption Flagstaff. It's good to be with you all. If you're new here, welcome. We're glad you're with us. Uh, my name is Tyler James. I serve as one of the pastors at Redemption Church Arcadia in Central Phoenix. If you didn't know, Redemption is a part of this larger family of churches in Arizona. We are, in fact, one church in 10 local congregations that are gospel-centered, outward-focused, and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, pastor Anthony, who's the lead pastor here and your regular teaching pastor, is away this week, and he'll be back next week as we continue in the wonderful book of Nehemiah. So you can turn there if you haven't already to Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, while you do that, and before we get any further in, let's just pause for a moment and pray, shall we? Before we do, just consider your week. Consider what led to you being here now. Some of us had really stressful weeks. Some of us were really busy. Maybe this is the first time you've been able to sit down and go, oh, okay. Some of us have had really joyful weeks and others. So let's just pray and invite the Lord in here. So God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the gift of your presence. What a gift it is to be able to worship, to sing praises to you as a people, as a community. Thank you for this, God, and thank you for your word. And as we study Nehemiah chapter 5, a book written so long ago that still is alive and active and has a word for us today, God, would you give us ears to hear it? Spirit, would you speak to us? Make us more like you, Jesus, when we leave here than when we did when we walked in. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into the text today, I just want to go over some important context for us to keep in mind as we study Nehemiah, because especially our section here, because I'm not exactly sure what Anthony's teaching you guys up here, but remember first that the book of Nehemiah is not represented here chronologically, where everything happens in this linear progression, okay? It's told in such a way that it's meant to highlight some theological truths about who God is and who we are in light of that. In other words, it's written in such a way to show God's character. Now, what that means is chapter 5 is here, but it's sequentially out of order, and that shouldn't surprise us. You know, you could read the end of chapter 4 and jump right into chapter 6, and it, and it wouldn't miss a beat. Narratively, it just jumps right in. Now, we'll talk more about the theological implications of why we think the book was edited together in that way towards the end of the sermon. Now, I know I've got you all hanging on the end of your seat for that one, right? Nobody's tuning in. Okay, okay, fine. Here's your teaser. If chapter 4 begins to unpack the opposition from outside the walls, chapter 5 is going to get at some opposition from within the walls. Okay, now nobody's tuning out, right? I've got you locked in. Okay. Remember why they're doing all this wall building in the first place. They're building the walls for protection, yes, of course, but what they're really doing is reminding themselves and everyone else that they are a special, chosen, set-apart people, a distinct people. That's what it means to be holy anyway, set-apart. They're God's holy people, and they should stay that way. So let's read Nehemiah 5. 1 through 5. It'll be up on the screen as well. 
Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. That's important. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of this famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. The narrative jumps right in to a time of widespread famine. There's not enough food to go around. And the people are getting desperate, and they're doing what desperate people do when they need things. They're selling whatever they have, whoever they have. And those with greater means, those with the houses and the land and the food, are lending it out to their fellow people and charging interest on it, which it doesn't sound like such a bad thing, does it? Well, I think what we'll find today is that part of the point here is that on paper, sin doesn't always look like sin. It's not always so obviously sin. Now, the problem here is they're taking way more than they should. They're causing pain on top of pain. And they're doing it during a time of widespread suffering. And they're seemingly indifferent to the cries of the people there. Now, this, these first five verses, this is a big upheaval in case you missed that. There are three groups of people crying out. Jewish people are protesting against their oppressors who are also Jewish. That's a big problem. And there's a progression of the poor here in these verses, showing greater and greater poverty down in each layer. The first group in verse 2, if you look, considered of a large family, those were large families, whose husbands may have been busy building the wall, that's possible. And so the women and the children must go out and harvest We've got to eat to survive, so let's, let's go out and do what we've got to do. The second group, they've sold all their possessions to buy food. They don't have anything left. And the third group in verse 4, they have less than nothing. They're borrowing money and lending their land. They're operating out of a deficit just to eat. That's three social layers here. This is a widespread problem. Not just the ones in charge, but the ones under them and the ones under them. Now, this kind of scheme, when you lend out money and charge more interest than is fair, that's not new. That happens today. Humans have done this to each other since the beginning of time. Another word for it is extortion. Any mobster movie fans in here? That's how the mob's built, right? On extortion. That's how they do it. And there are laws to protect today, but the laws don't protect everyone. The people are stuck in a poverty cycle, which is a real phenomenon. And the only way out of that is outside intervention. The people being oppressed are powerless. Their only option is to cry out. John Golden Gay, in his book, Old Testament Theology, says this. This is really helpful. Nehemiah points out the paradox in the people's behavior. They've expended resources on reestablishing the community. Now the haves are treating the have-nots as a commodity to be bought and sold. 
Their action demonstrates no reverence for God. It risks the taunts of the community's enemies, that is, the people among whom they live. What's needed is a willingness to lend money, to relieve the need, not to make money. Now, if you know your Bible, you know the book of Exodus, the story there is one of God delivering his people out of slavery, right? That's like the whole point. So they, they left slavery, and now they're being sold back into slavery. Are you starting to see how, like, messed up this is? When you treat people as a commodity instead of a community, you make yourself the highest priority, and you risk the reputation and the wrath of God. I'm going to say that again. When you treat people as a commodity instead of as a community, you make yourself the highest priority, and you risk the reputation and wrath of God. Now, in light of these things, Nehemiah, he's, he's stirred up. His wrath is stirred up. Let's read Nehemiah 5, this time 6 through 8. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Now this is their reaction. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. His words stun the leaders and the people into silence. They don't know what to say. They're busted. Have you ever been that kind of busted before where you're just like, ah. you're right. That's not, a, that's not a fun feeling, is it? I want to take a minute here and notice Nehemiah's response. I think there's something here for us today. First, he's angry. He's upset. Now, we don't have any indication of him feeling the anger and trying to suppress the anger. No, he's angry. But what's he angry at? He sees the people hurting each other, oppressing one another. That's one. He sees greed taking hold of people's hearts, really coming from a place of fear of going without. It's a famine, remember? So those, the, like Golden Gate would say, the haves are saying, well, I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be left out here. So he sees greed taking hold of people's hearts. He sees them putting their kin back into slavery undoing God's work. And Nehemiah is wise to see the full extent of the harm being done. And he's rightly angry. Remember, the example that Jesus set, too, is that anger is not a bad thing. It's not a, a negative emotion on its own. It's what you do with the anger, right? You guys have experienced this, I'm sure. Scripture tells us, be angry and do not sin. An important word there. After feeling his anger, notice the next thing Nehemiah does. ESV says he takes counsel within himself. It's not the clearest way of saying it. The New American Standard says, I consulted with myself. So he's like talking to himself. That's not exactly helpful. Any NIV readers here? What's the NIV say? Go ahead. I pondered them in my mind. Okay, that's more helpful. So now we're starting to get to the idea. It's saying, I gave it some serious thought. 
I thought it over. I took a second. So he's feeling the anger, but he pauses to think for a sec, then decides what to do. He accuses the leaders directly. Apparently, on the first part of verse 7, he brings it to them as well. And then he calls together all the people involved, the leadership and the oppressed and the oppressors. And we have probably an abridged version of what he said here. But he makes these same correlations that we've been talking about of them undoing the work of God. And now their silence after being called out. It could be that it's genuine heart change. It could be conviction. They're just sitting there going, oh, man, I really need to rethink some stuff here. Or it could be just simply they're just getting a public spanking and they have no other option here. It could be that too. But either way, Nehemiah has made his point. And so without putting too fine a point on it, I wonder if this is a model we're invited to follow. Let's consider for a moment our anger responses. Are we angry at offenses done to God or primarily offenses done against us? And now if it's to us, we can take an easy off-ramp here and just forgive them. That's an option we have. So first, when we feel anger like Nehemiah, we should question that feeling. We should ponder them in our own self. And then decide, okay, where's that coming from? What's the best thing to do with it? The answer is probably not. We'll just stuff that down deep down there. That way it'll never come out again. We, some of you in here know that doesn't work, does it? We can't ignore it, especially when it's God's reputation that's at stake. So Nehemiah paused. He considered. I don't think it'd be a stretch to say he probably prayed at this time. You could say Nehemiah responded in wisdom. He didn't just react to the circumstance. That's kind of the point I want to make here. Reacting seems to be where we get ourselves in trouble when it comes to anger, but taking a moment and pausing and praying, then responding seems to be a wiser way of doing things. Not just with our anger, but in general. Let's be a people so dependent on God that we consider him, that we pray to him first. Let's be slow to speak and quick to listen. Maybe Proverbs says it best for us, as it often happens. Proverbs 14, 29 says this, if you stay calm, you are wise. But if you have a hot temper, you only show how stupid you are. Wow, okay, that's pretty clear. I think I get it. That was Proverbs 14, 29. If you want to hang on to that one and use that against someone else uh, at another time, Proverbs 14, 29. And that was a good news translation, by the way. Just hang on to that one. I like that one. Now, lastly, when confronting sin, Nehemiah took it straight to the individuals causing the offense. And this is important. He didn't gossip about it. He didn't get on social media, put them on blast. He confronted them to their faces. We need a little more of that these days, don't we? In love, with respect, but we need a little more of that loving, direct confrontation. Nehemiah continues in verse 9. Here's what he says to the silence in the room. We're going to read 9 through 13. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, 
and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been extracting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. There's a lot in there. Isn't it funny first how, how simple it all seems when you see Nehemiah's response in verse 9? He just says, this, this is not good. You shouldn't be doing this. The people bring up all this injustice against the poor and taking advantage of the powerless, and Nehemiah just simply says, it's, it's, not, it's not okay. Now, I'm certainly not saying here that the problems of the poor in the world can be summed up or solved this simply, but in this case, Nehemiah is able to cut right through to the problem. It's sin. It's greed. And like a good pastor, he knows how to speak right to the problem which is another lesson for the leaders in the room. I think verse 9 is key to this, this whole thing. Take another look at it now. What, what does he say is the remedy to their sin, to the oppression and harm being done to the poor? What does he say is the remedy to that? Ought you instead not to walk in what? The fear of the Lord. Now that term might seem strange to you, and maybe you already get this. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you already get the concept. But this will be a good refresher for you. You know, the concept of the fear of the Lord is a rich, biblical one. We see it all throughout the Bible. A ton in the book of Psalms and Proverbs. And Proverbs 28 even contrasts the fear of the Lord with a hardness of heart. So fearing the Lord means you have a soft, receptive heart. And not fearing the Lord means you have a hard, unresponsive heart. So what is fear of the Lord? Well, first, it is a God-mindedness. Think about that for a sec. Walking in the reality of his constant presence. You know, there's a theological understanding that an attribute of God is called his omnipresence. Anybody heard that before? Omni meaning everywhere. Presence, present. He's present everywhere. Now, this is one of those concepts that can kind of break your mind if you think about it too much. That means that God is equally present everywhere all at the same time. So think about how big creation is. You kind of get the idea. Now, this ought to bring us great comfort to know that there's nowhere that God is not, but it also should cause fear. That means he saw that thing you did that you thought nobody saw. He knew the way you lusted after that person in your heart. He knew the thought you had about that person, that, you, that evil thought, that person you don't like. He sees it all. There's no place on earth he's not fully present. We need to ask God for a greater awareness in our day-to-day -day lives of his constant presence. The fear of the Lord, first, is a God-mindedness. Second, the fear of the Lord is also reverent attention and awe of who he is, seeing his character as the Bible describes him. Now, how does the Bible describe him? Describe him besides being omnipresent? Well, just flip ahead a few pages to Nehemiah 9, if you've got your Bibles open. In verse 17, I'm going to flip there too. 
chapter 9, verse 17. It's the second half of um, verse 17. Halfway through ish, it says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. This is an echo of Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where God reveals to Moses who he is on Mount Sinai. You might remember that scene. He's mighty, powerful, and loving gracious and we ought to fix our eyes on him so the fear of the lord second means fixing our attention and awe of him and who he is now what isn't the fear of the lord well first it's it's living as if there's not a god living like there won't be consequences for your choices and your sin that's first what it looks like to not live in the fear of god but the fear of the lord isn't simply being afraid of god like an abusive father or something, like he's out to get you? Because that reaction forgets who he is. We just read about who he is. Knowing that he's watching, but forgetting that those who are in Christ, his gaze on you is not as this angry father, but a loving, gracious father. Picture a really great dad looking at their kid, even when their kid's doing something they shouldn't be doing, There's still love there. There's still connection there. You know, there's a story. uh, I used to work at this church in um, Prescott, Arizona, and um, we all worked knowing that the senior pastor, his name was Al, he was like an ex-military guy. He just kind of did things just by the book like that. We were always making sure that whatever we did, if he walked in the room, you know, we weren't doing anything that he would be like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. But also his wife, his wife's name was Becky. And we used to, whenever we'd go out to see movies or anything, we'd say to each other, you know, would you be seeing that movie if Becky was there next to you? Would you be be seeing that movie if Becky was right behind you, would you? Well, instead of picturing Becky over your shoulder, picture, picture a perfectly loving and patient father. What would he say to those hidden actions of yours? Walking in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because the source of wisdom is here. It's here. And without God's saving work, you don't have eyes to see what's in here. You don't have ears to hear what's in here. The word of God is the penultimate source of truth and wisdom. And we can't begin to receive it without first fearing God. John Piper gives this image. So say you're a rock climber. You might be a rock climbers in here anyway but say you're a really really good rock climber and you're on the Himalayas right that's got to be like the best rock climbing there is I'm guessing okay so you're on the Himalayas you're you're rock climbing it's it's great it's beautiful up there but you're exposed out on the rock face right now all of a sudden the wind is picking up and there's a storm coming and it looks bad as the sky begins to darken, you're, you're looking now for a place to hide, a crack in the rocks, anything to protect you. You find one just in time as the edge of the storm hits like an earthquake. And now you're safe from your vantage point. You're in that, in that crack. You're safe and protected. But where are your eyes going to be? You're going to be looking at the storm, right? From that vantage point, you can't help but stare 
in awe and wonder at its power. The fear of God makes the work of Jesus more precious to us. Without him, we're in the storm. That song, Rock of Ages, do you guys know that one? That sings of that truth. The rock of ages was cleft, was broken for us, and we can hide in him. In our text today, the fear of the Lord means that oppressing the poor to better your investment portfolio is not good. The fear of the Lord breaks this cycle of treating people like a commodity to exploit instead of a community to join. Fearing God means not only what's best for me doing that, but also considering what's best for others. And here's my main point for the the whole message today. If you walk away with one thing, walk away with this. Fearing God makes for a generous people. I think that's what this text is getting at here. The fear of the Lord changes the way that you treat people. People who don't fear God always cause harm to themselves and others, knowingly or unknowingly. That's what Nehemiah appeals to. Not only stop what you're doing, but remember you are God's special chosen people. And God's people don't treat others this way. They're generous, not oppressive. You ought to fear God. The last thing in these verses that's so remarkable, if you notice that the people just immediately respond. They immediately say, oh, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. Now, again, whether it's genuine heart change or they're just publicly shamed into obedience, they pledge in front of the priests. That's why they're there. And they promise to stop oppressing people. And, of course, we've all done what Nehemiah does at the very end of this section where he shakes his clothes threateningly. We've all done that to make, to make a point, right? And try that at your next dinner party. When you're really trying to make a point, just shake your clothes, and that'll definitely strike fear into the hearts of all those at your dinner party. What's happening there with the shaking of clothes thing is it's a renewal of the, the people's commitment to be in covenant with God. You'll be removed from this special people, he's saying. You'll be thrown out of these walls, literally and figuratively, if you don't keep these promises. And the people say, amen, which if you remember that word means, let it be so, which is a very appropriate place for that. And they begin to worship God. Now, verses 14 through 19, let's read this. This is what Nehemiah holds up as an example of what generosity looks like, 14 to 19. Nehemiah says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver, Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Why? He says, because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were gathered around us. 
Now what was prepared at my expense, this is what it took to feed his 150 men and leaders, was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, that's interesting, right? The reason that he gives for why he does these things. He shares this personal example of what it meant for him to be faithful in a time of widespread suffering, like a famine. And even though it's legal for him to demand this thing called the food allowance, which he explains here, he knew it was too heavy a burden on the people. He didn't want to live comfortably, even if it's within his power to do so while the people around him suffered. Sometimes what's legal isn't what's good. Sometimes what's allowed isn't what's right. The laws are to be followed, but it's not our highest standard, church. Christ is. His word is. And fear of God means that you adhere to this first. So Nehemiah hasn't taken more land. He hasn't taken the food allowance. He's put himself in the same boat as the rest of the people. Why? Why would he do that? Because of the fear of God. So first, he didn't let circumstances dictate his response, which he could have. Two, he knew that God was in control of the situation the whole time. I wonder how often we might forget this, that God's in control. Three, he viewed his people as a community more than a commodity. He knew that what they needed most was relief. And four, he valued God's favor over what he thought he deserved. Now, in a time of widespread suffering, the result is that Nehemiah stood apart. Isn't that what a holy people are to do? Be different? Be set apart? And he ends chapter 5 with this amazing little prayer in verse 19. Remember for my good, O my God all that I've done for this people. Now, as a nerdy, interesting little aside here for the two people in the room that like this kind of stuff, if you really did want to put this in chronological order, some scholars would put chapter 5 at the very end of Nehemiah. So it would go 4, 6, blah, 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 and then 5 at the very end, which would mean that Nehemiah's short prayer here would close the book of Nehemiah. Now, I think that's beautiful to consider Why is it so beautiful? Because he's just admitted that he's taken a loss from this whole wall-building project. But here in this prayer, he's confessing trust in God to fill in those gaps. If fearing God makes you a more generous people, then fearing God puts you at a personal deficit, right? At least financially and maybe provisionally. And that's really simple. If you give more freely, you have less, right? There's a story of a guy who I used to know. I mean, we were in community with him. Now, what he did for work was he made the music for movie trailers, which might sound like a really niche thing, but when I'd ask him, he'd never talk about it, but when I'd ask him, what movies are you working on? At the time, it was all the Star Wars movies that were being redone, uh, the Mad Max one that was redone, It was in kind of that era. These are the biggest movies of the time. Like, that's that's as big as movie trailer game gets, I'm sure. 
Now, when I learned more about what he did, I realized he was really well off, but you wouldn't know by looking at him, um, the way he dressed, the cars he drove, the, the house he had, his family, their lifestyle, their vacations, you wouldn't know it. And the, the reason that stood out to me is because my wife and I, we were recipients of his generosity uh, more than once. He lived a life of radical generosity. He gave to the point where he couldn't live the same lifestyle that he could have if he didn't give. But is it that radical for Christians? Is it that radical? Maybe it shouldn't be. Who did John fear more? Who did my friend fear more? Generosity comes at a price, but who are you going to fear most? Nehemiah refused to trust, uh, I'm sorry, Nehemiah trusted that God would take care of him, but he didn't know how, but he knew that God's character meant that he, that fearing God means I'm going to obey him, even if I don't know exactly how that's going to work out. Now, I want to return back to something that we covered at the beginning, which was if chapter 5 is inserted here for some theological purpose, what is it? Well, and this idea comes from a Nehemiah scholar named Mark Thronveit. I think I'm saying his name right. If the picture being painted at the end of chapter 4 indicates wholehearted commitment by the people, you remember that? It was they're carrying supplies and then they have their sword in the other hand. Or they're building the wall and they've just got their sword right here just in case. They're sleeping in their clothes. This is all in commitment. Then it seems that chapter 5 is showing the inevitability of the future relapse of the people. Now, it's not just the theological mission of chapter 5, but the mission of the book of Nehemiah. And bigger than that, the entire Bible is to show that this is the cycle of humanity. Our sin patterns after the cycles of recommitment. Yeah, we're going to do this. We're going we're to commit to God and relapse over and over. And just like the poverty cycle, we're stuck in the sin cycle without outside intervention. Nehemiah 5 is placed here to point us ultimately to Jesus. His work is the intervening act on our cycle of sin adding redemption to the cycle of relapse, creating a way out. There's good stuff happening in chapter 4, but the restoration of the walls, the temple, isn't what the people ultimately, finally needed. Jesus himself said that of the temple later on. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. He meant this temple wasn't going to last forever. We needed a new temple. A temple that was built on the work of Jesus on the cross. The new temple is you and me, church. A few final thoughts to help give you some handles on applying some of the things that we've discussed this morning. One, regarding the treatment of the poor, we, the church, ought to love and serve them. That's what it means to be a set-apart community. To be in community with them and they with us. Now, for the members in the room, you signed a, a membership covenant that has a section on, on how we care for the poor. I'd encourage you to consider rereading that prayerfully, asking the Lord to speak to you. And if you're not a member, you don't know what this document is, and you want to see it, um, email Anthony or any of the staff or, or come up after all. I can send it to you. 
Now, I want you to also consider the fear of the Lord as we talked about it. Reflect on it. Ask the Lord to show you, to speak to you. And Christians in the room, are you living in the reality of Christ's presence as a set-apart holy people? Or does your life look an awful lot like everyone else's? Church, in times of anger or stress, do you act wisely? If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, surely knowing and loving his word is its end. Are you reading the Bible regularly? What about generosity? Would others describe you as a generous person? Why or why not? And last, how does the fear of the Lord and his presence change the way that you interact at work with your family and with the poor around you even this week? Pray with me. God, make us a people that fear you in the fullest sense of the word. God, make us this very day a people that love the poor and are generous. And we pray with Nehemiah that you, God, would remember us. Remember the sacrifices we made the times where we gave secretly, the times where we loved sacrificially. God, we trust you to provide for us. Again, God, we thank you for your word. And as we move into reflecting, God, we just pray that your spirit would be working in us. In Jesus' name, amen.